Welcome to Good News. My name is Pete Smith. For those who are new with us, welcome. Uh, The people I appreciate most in my life uh, are the people that are honest to a fault. Uh, They're very transparent. Uh, There was an elderly lady at my last church who grew up in Texas, and uh, she lived by the motto, if the good Lord knows I'm thinking it, I might as well say it. And I loved it, right? Uh, she didn't talk to, uh, to people behind your back. Uh, she'd tell you right to your face what she thought. Uh, she was quite bold. It didn't bother her. Uh, you always knew where you stood with her. And she would admit, sometimes my mouth gets me into trouble. And, uh, well, John the Baptist was just like that. Uh, he was a bold preacher He was bold in what he wore. You may remember he wore uh, camel hair and a leather belt. He was bold in his diet. He ate wild honey and locusts. And he was very bold about the truth. Uh, He was a man's man, and he was God's man. He wouldn't tell people just what they wanted to hear. He'd tell them what God wanted people to hear. He preached like a man on fire for God with absolutely nothing to lose. On one occasion, despite doing nothing wrong, his bold message got him into trouble. And it didn't just uh, put him into troubling circumstances. It ended up troubling his faith. Uh, So today's message is titled, A Troubled Voice. Uh, If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke in chapter 3. If you are new to uh, the Bible or you're new to Good News Bible Chapel, uh, we have Bibles out in the entryway that you can have for free. Uh, The Gospel of Luke is about, I don't know, two-thirds to three-quarters of the way through the Bible. And we're going to begin in chapter 3. And uh, the, the chapter 3 is the big number in your Bible, if you're not aware of that. And the verses are the little numbers. So Luke chapter 3, and we're going to start at verse 18. We are in a series on John the Baptist, and uh, we have finished reading the Old Testament. We're getting ready to read the entire New Testament this year. And this guy is really important right in between these two times. Uh, in the Bible. And so we've been studying John the Baptist. John, uh, Luke chapter 3 and verse 18 says this, and this is what John does to get in trouble, okay? It says in verse 18, and in this way, with many other exhortations, John proclaimed good news to the people. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch, because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the evil deeds that he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked up John in prison. Okay, so here's John. He's got an unwavering commitment to call sin, sin, right? Sounds like a good Baptist. Uh, He called everyone to repentance, right? He knew that everybody is a sinner in need of a Savior. Everybody needed to repent, even the politicians, Okay, and one politician he called out by name 
was a man by the name of Herod Antipas. Now, Herod Antipas was the son of Herod the Great. You remember the story about how Herod the Great tried to kill all the babies when Jesus was born? Well, this is Herod the Great's son, Herod Antipas, okay? And he ruled over the area uh, in the northern part of the Promised Land called Galilee. And uh, he sinned in a very public and a very shameful way And John the Baptist called him out on it. You see, Herod Antipas had a brother named Herod Philip, who was also a son of Herod the Great. And Herod Philip ruled over a different area. And Herod Philip had a wife named Herodias. Well, Herod Antipas decided, I'm going to get a divorce. So he got a divorce, and Herodias, his brother's wife, divorced Herod Philip, And so Herodias and Herod Antipas got together. They both divorced their spouses and then they married each other. And according to the Old Testament, God hates divorce. Now he permits it when there's a case of adultery, okay? But he only permits it because of the hardness of people's hearts. But God hates divorce, okay? Uh, But that's not all. The Old Testament also strictly forbade people from marrying their brother's spouse. Men could never marry their brother's spouse. That was against the law. And that's what Herod Antipas did. And so John called sin a sin. He encouraged Herod Antipas to repent, right? He wanted Herod Antipas to live a changed life. Even Herod Antipas was supposed to to prepare for the coming of the Lord, But Herod Antipas didn't want to change, and being the hypersensitive politician that he was, and because he didn't like his reputation being called out, Herod had John the Baptist arrested and locked him up in the fortress of Manchurius. John didn't do anything wrong. He was simply doing what God wanted him to do, and calling people to live virtuous lives and to prepare for the coming of the Lord. Uh, Imagine for a minute, If a preacher in the last 50 years called out a president for having sinned, and I can think of two people on this side of the the aisle and two people on this side of the the spectrum politically that preachers could call out by name. Imagine a president being so sour about a little preacher in 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 a church somewhere that he decides to arrest the guy and throw him into federal prison. Okay, this is what happens to John. And uh, his bold message got him into trouble and thrown into prison. And it didn't just put him into troubling circumstances, okay? It ended up troubling his faith. Uh, It was there in the confines of prison that his own faith began to waver. Turn with me in your Bible. You're in Luke chapter 3. Turn with me to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 and verse 18, and I want you to see what that did to John. Okay, this is a very important event in John's life. John, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 7 and verse 18, it says, John's disciples informed him about all these things, meaning all the things that Jesus was doing. So John called two of his disciples and sent them to Jesus to ask Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? How in the world 
Can a follower of Jesus still have doubts about Jesus? John's the most godly man on the planet. He saw God the Holy Spirit descend like a dove and remain on Jesus. He heard God the Father say to Jesus at Jesus' baptism that this is my one dear son in whom I well love, who I love greatly. And, and he identified that this Jesus is the Messiah. He started telling people about Jesus. John was convinced he is not a person who is easily shaken whatsoever, but here in prison, he's shaken. He didn't expect to be in prison enduring hardship for God. Right? He thought the long-awaited moment had come, that the, the king of the world was finally here and going to set everything right. He didn't think he was going to be thrown into prison. He was just preparing for this guy. This was the king of David that was going to be ruling the world. And he lived like it was already a reality. And so he preached with his head on fire. John never thought he would be thrown into prison. And now that he's there, in prison, he's got a lot of time to think. And he wonders, is Jesus the one who is to come? Or should we look for another? How do you explain that? How do you go from preaching like your head's on fire to questioning whether or not Jesus is the, the one who is to come? Last week, I read a book titled Same as Ever, A Guide to What Never Changes. And it had a couple of observations that might give us a glimpse into what's going on inside of John there in prison. Uh, the first observation is really obvious one, okay? Uh, nothing is more persuasive than what you've experienced firsthand. Nothing is more persuasive than what you've experienced firsthand. What did John experience? He saw the Holy Spirit descend and remain on Jesus. This is the one who was to come. He knew it. He was convinced this is the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the Savior of the world. He had experienced that firsthand. He was totally convinced. Uh, you and I, if we have an experience, uh, we will never allow anybody to probably argue us out of that experience. All right? Um, the second observation the book made was also really obvious. Uh, the author writes this. He said, people have no idea how they'll respond to an extreme shift in circumstance until they experience it for themselves. And the book goes on to tell a story that I'd never heard before. Um, who here has ever heard of Pavlov's dog? Yeah, a lot of us, right? Okay. Um, Pavlov was a famous psychologist, and he had set up this experiment uh, with a bunch of dogs, and he would ring a bell, and he would feed the dogs food. He would ring a bell and feed the dogs food. And he would do it over and over and over again. This is a well-known experiment. And what he would do is he would ring the bell, and instead of giving them food, he would watch their reaction, and they would start to drool. They would start to salivate. They were getting ready to eat because they had always had food in front of them. And so he made a notification. This is how you can condition animals and maybe people like this, right? Well, what's less? it's a well-known experiment, right? What's less well-known is what happened after these experiments with these dogs. 
1924, a massive flood swept through Leningrad where Pavlov kept his lab and the kennel of dogs. And the flood was so bad that the water came right up to the dogs' cages. Unfortunately, many of the, the dogs died and drowned to death. Uh, on the other hand, some of the dogs uh, survived because they had been forced to swim for a quarter of a mile to safety. Uh, Pavlov later called it the most traumatic thing the dogs had ever experienced by far. Uh, but something really fascinating happened. Uh, the dogs totally forgot their learned behavior. Uh, whenever Pavlov would ring the bell, they wouldn't drool. Pavlov wrote this about one dog 11 days after the floodwaters receded. He said, after the application of the bell, all the remaining conditioned reflexes almost completely disappeared. The animal again declined the food, became very restless, and continuously stared at the door. Pavlov spent months studying how the flood changed his dog's behavior. Many of them were never the same again. Uh, they had completely different personalities after the flood. And the learned behavior that, that used to be so ingrained in them uh, completely vanished. Pavlov summed up his findings and how it applies to humans. He said how, he wrote, different conditions productive of extreme excitation often lead to profound and profound, prolonged loss of balance and nervous and psychic activity. Neuroses and psychoses may develop as a result of extreme danger to oneself or to near friends, or even the spectacle of some frightful event not affecting one directly. Okay? So what he's saying is experiencing something uh, that makes you stare ruin in the face and question whether or not you're going to survive or not, uh, that can, an experience like that can actually reset your expectations and actually change your beliefs and behaviors. Uh, when you used to have all these beliefs and behaviors totally ingrained in you, it'll, it can reset all of them. One experience can be so traumatic that it usurps all your previous experience. Uh, people have no idea how they'll respond to an extreme shift in circumstance until they actually experience it for themselves. John the Baptist went from one set of experiences. He was totally free, preaching whatever he wanted, freely roaming the countryside. He didn't have anything holding him back, right? He could do whatever he want, and then he could preach and say whatever he want. And he went to another set of experiences where he was being arrested and thrown into prison by Herod Antipas himself. It was extremely traumatic. His life was completely upended. His hopes were dashed. His dreams became uncertain to him. That's how a man who is not easily shaken became shaken. When he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one to come or should we look for another? John's doing what everyone does in this kind of a situation, right? He's questioning his faith. Everyone is going to doubt at some point or another. Everyone. Even great people like John the Baptist. Uh, it could be an accident. 
It could be a terrible tragedy. It could be an awful illness. You might lose your favorite job and your career goes down the toilet. You could be betrayed. You might even have to declare bankruptcy or maybe you begin to mourn the unexpected death of a loved one. And in those moments, people ask profound, serious questions. We ask, is there really a God? What is He really like? Is there any purpose in life? If so, what is it? Why was I thrust into this? How could God let this happen? John's faith in Jesus was being tested at a profound level because of this imprisonment. He didn't think he was going to get out. And he thought maybe he was going to die because of what he said about Herod and Herodias. And he thinks, what's the burden of proof? that Jesus is the Messiah? Are the stories that I'm hearing just embellished stories? I'm in prison. I'm not seeing what's happening. Why doesn't he come rescue me? But all these questions kind of boil down to to this, right? We want to know, is there anything real on which to base our lives? We don't want answers to help us merely because they're nice to believe in. Something deep down in us knows we want to live life based on rock-solid truth. I don't want these cliches out there. Belief requires truth to be believed. Right? Real faith rejects the make-believe. We don't want some sort of placebo faith based on being naive or being misinformed by people, right? No one was willing to settle for a fantasy world of our own mental creation. Everybody wants solid evidence that what we believe is indeed based on the facts within reality. And here's a man who went from being unshaken in his faith about Jesus as the Messiah to becoming greatly shaken. If the great John the Baptist questions his faith in a time of crisis... Don't be surprised in the midst of your own life struggles if you start to ask the same kind of questions that John asked. What does James call it when you go through a trial? He says it's a testing of your faith. But here's the thing. John's questions aren't fatal to his faith. Uh. It's not rooted in unbelief that he's asking these questions, okay? He's not like a person who has rejected Jesus, okay? He's just questioning, is his faith based on what is truly true? And he wants assurance that it's really legit. Is Jesus really the Christ? What's the burden of proof I know what I saw, but I question all of that now. I need to know, is there something outside of me that can tell me that really he is or he is not the one who is to come, or should we look for another? Is Jesus' miracles, the ones I'm hearing about in prison, are they fictitious or not? Is Jesus the Messiah? And so John called his two disciples and sent them to ask Jesus, 
Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? Now, notice that he sends two disciples. Two disciples. Uh, not one, but two. Okay? In the Old Testament, if you wanted to establish the truth about a matter, you needed multiple eyewitnesses. One eyewitness could lie to you, right? Well, you need to have two or three eyewitnesses uh, who had given you the testimony of what they experienced to determine if something really did happen or not. And since John can't rely on his own experience anymore, because he's questioned it all, because he's thrown into prison, he has to rely on other eyewitnesses. And so how does Jesus respond to John's two disciples? What happens here? Look with me in verse 20 in your Bibles. Chapter 7 and verse 20 says, When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? At that very time, Jesus cured many people of diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and granted sight to many who were blind. So he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news proclaimed to them. Blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. Now, first of all, notice how Jesus responds to John's question, right? Jesus actually welcomes John's question. He doesn't get upset at John. He doesn't make fun of John. He understands this is what people go through. All right? It's very natural to think that any doubt is fatal to a person's faith journey, but that's not the case. Not all doubts are the same. Okay? It's not doubt that is toxic to a person's faith. It's actually unexpressed doubt that's toxic to a person's faith. Okay? Jesus welcomes John's questions. He welcomes the question of any follower of his, even today. He knows that there's going to be traumatic experiences in your life that could reset what you think about things. And he's looking for a faith that's tested, that's really, truly true. Okay? And so he knows that, that faith needs to be based on a truth. Real faith can't just be a fantasy. Right? Jesus doesn't expect people to, to, to believe in assertionisms where people just simply assert stuff that is true and told to sit down and be quiet and believe it. That's not how he's created us, okay? People want and need evidence-based faith. Faith needs to be based on something in reality. People have to experience it. So Jesus gives John what he needs, okay? Notice that, John, uh, notice that Jesus doesn't answer John's question with a verbal answer. At first, he doesn't sit down and write down a long letter that's highly reasoned and all based on scripture and totally this long dissertation about why John should continue to believe that he is the one who is to come. What did Jesus do? He hears John's question and then what? At that very hour, Jesus cured many people of diseases sicknesses and evil spirits and granted sight to many who were blind. 
Now, for a second, it looks like Jesus just ignores John and just goes and turns and heals all these people that are in front of him needing his help, okay? People with life-threatening diseases are, are cured. Uh, people with temporary diseases are made better. Others are demon-possessed, and they're freed from the tyranny of darkness that they're going through. Many, it says many blind people are given their sight. And then Jesus turns back to the two disciples of John, and he says to them, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news proclaimed to them. Blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. Don't give John a long answer. Just tell John what you've seen and heard. Tell him. He needs to hear it from you. You guys are eyewitnesses of what I just did for a whole hour. Tell him what you saw with your own eyes and heard with your own ears. Tell him. But when you tell him, tell him like this. The blind see the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news proclaimed to them. What's John doing? And what's Jesus doing here? Right? He's giving John's two eyewitnesses two evidences that he really is the one who is to come, that he himself is the Messiah. And the first evidence, the first piece of evidence is miracles. Now, why miracles? What do miracles do? Well, because miracles are supernatural, they are a sign from God, okay? When, when something supernatural happens, it's got to be God who does it, okay? Uh, they don't actually testify that the person who does the miracle has the ability to do it, okay? It's not that this person has magical powers, okay? Uh, there were a lot of people throughout the Bible who did miracles and had miracles associated with them other than Jesus, okay? Miracles don't prove that they're somehow superhuman or have powerful abilities, okay? Instead, miracles function as God's testimony to authenticate the message that is being preached by the person that the miracle is associated with, okay? It's like God saying, hey, I'm going to do this miracle so that you know what this guy is saying is true. I'm going to put my stamp of approval on him. Listen to him. His message is important. Okay? So that's the first piece of evidence Jesus gives John's disciples to give to John. Now remember, John, remember, God approved of me back in the past, but he still approves of me. I'm the one he delights in. I'm his one dear son. God the Spirit is clearly demonstrating that. These miracles prove that God is approving of me, John. So that's the first piece of evidence Jesus gives John's disciples. The second piece of evidence Jesus gives John is Scripture. Okay? Hey, John, hey, hey uh, when, when you tell John all about these miracles, you've got to tell him like this. Tell him like this. That's what my Bible says. Tell him like this. The blind see... The lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news proclaimed to them. What's Jesus doing? Okay? 
Jesus is actually paraphrasing three really important passages from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah was an Old Testament prophet that prophesied 400 years before the time of Christ. And Isaiah is really important because he's the one who predicted that there was going to be a forerunner before the servant of the Lord arrived. Right? He's the one that wrote about John being the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Isaiah wrote that, okay? And he's prophesying that there's going to be this this man who prepares the way of the Lord, and, and Isaiah is really important to John. And so here's John in prison. He's that guy that Isaiah prophesied about. But Isaiah is even more important for Jesus, Isaiah prophesied about this servant of the Lord, and in Isaiah 35, he writes, Then blind eyes will be open, deaf ears will hear, then the lame will leap like a deer, the mute tongue will shout for joy. You're dead, he says in, verse, in chapter 26. Isaiah says, your dead will come back to life. Your corpses will rise up. Isaiah 61, he writes, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has chosen me. He has commissioned me to encourage the poor, to help the brokenhearted, to decree the release of captives and the freeing of prisoners. Right? Isaiah was a true prophet. And over time, uh, there were a lot of ideas, there was a lot of expectations about what the Messiah would do when he would arrive. And so for 400 years, Jews were thinking about it and talking about it and writing about it. And everyone began to believe that when the Messiah come, he would be this uh, military ruler who's going to free Israel from the tyranny of the Gentile rule of Rome and that this Messiah was going to set up a new Davidic kingdom and the new Davidic dynasty would get established and, and it would eventually be the world headquarters for the kingdom of God. It would be a world empire with God ruling through this this new son of David. And according to, uh, that's, that's the picture that a lot of Jews thought when they read their Old Testament. But that's not the whole picture of what the Messiah was going to do. Okay? He's not just a military ruler, according to the Old Testament. He's way more than a military dictator. Okay? According to Isaiah, he's also a healer. He's an advocate for the poor. And those who are uh, those things, when you do miracles and, and you try to, to do the, the, the reverse people's blindness and stuff, right? Those things are actually a lot harder than being a military dictator in this world. According to Isaiah, when you see these signs, when those healings and those kind of miracles, It's going to indicate that the presence of God's rule is being manifest in this world. And Jesus is telling John, this is that special time. It's it's arrived. I'm the one who is to come. I'm the Messiah. Don't you see the miracles? Don't you hear Isaiah talking about me? John, I mean, Jesus wanted John's faith to be based on God's expectations of the Messiah, not whatever people thought the Messiah should be. Jesus didn't fit into the common idea of what a Messiah should be in John's day, but but Jesus fit the prophetic truth. Hey, John, go back and adjust your idea of what I came to do. Look again at your Hebrew Bible, John. 
I'm doing this part that Isaiah talks about that is really hard to do. Look at all these miracles that Isaiah, they're happening now. I'm the deliverer. Keep believing, John. Believe what God said long ago through Isaiah. Believe the evidence that I'm giving you now. I know it's shaking you, John. Not that you're in prison, now that you're in prison, but here's the rock-solid truth. I am he who is to come. That's the answer Jesus gave to John. If you're the kind of person who is exploring Christianity or maybe uh, you've never really fully entrusted yourself to Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior, that He can save you from your sin and give you eternal life and raise you from the dead, I want to encourage you, if you're hesitating because of your own personal life experience, I completely get that your own experience is the most persuasive thing in your life. And it's perfectly okay if you never experienced Jesus personally up to this point in your life. Just like John, we too have to believe in the experience of others. I know it's hard to trust others. But if John was the most godly person on the planet and he had to trust other eyewitnesses who had a personal experience with Jesus, then that shouldn't be a reason to doubt Jesus. And if John had to trust what the Bible told him about the Messiah, then that, should be a reason for, uh, that shouldn't be a reason for us to doubt Jesus either. Just like John, we today have to trust the eyewitnesses and their written accounts that they put into the Scriptures for us to, to have today. We have to believe that they really saw what they saw. Jesus really did make the blind see. The, blame, the, the, the lame began to walk. The lepers got healed. The deaf began to hear. And he even raised dead people in his ministry. Uh, we should consider their experiences as valid when we consider whether or not Jesus can forgive you and give you eternal life and raise you from the dead. Multiple people saw multiple miracles. And there are multiple eyewitness accounts that we still have in writing today that testify God really did affirm everything that Jesus said about himself was true. And I believe today, personally, I believe Jesus died for my sin and rose from the dead. Not simply because the Bible says so. Okay, I believe because Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, and Peter, and James, and Paul said so, right? These were people who were eyewitnesses and friends of eyewitnesses of Jesus' miracles and his death and bodily resurrection from the grave, okay? I believe that they had these experiences. And so I believe that Jesus is the one that the world is looking for to save it. And when you believe their experiences with Jesus, your belief will be grounded in reality. It's not baseless. Christianity is based on bedrock historical evidence. Eternity is at stake for you. Okay? You need to be really sure to get this right. Don't ignore your eternal destiny. Just know that Christians, we're not just asserting something that's baseless. Okay? There's multiple evidences by multiple eyewitnesses that Jesus is the chosen Savior of the world. 
Now, maybe he doesn't fit your expectations of what you thought should happen or what God is like. And maybe your expectations aren't being met right now. But Jesus didn't match John's expectations of Messiah either. John had to adjust his expectations to God's plans. And that's what he would ask us to do too. Adjust your expectations to what God wanted to do and how he wanted to save the world, not how you think it should be saved. Jesus asked John to believe regardless of his traumatic circumstances as a prisoner of Herod who was staring down the death penalty. And so I want to encourage you, if you're exploring Christianity, don't keep looking for another answer because your experiences have taught you something else. You do need to trust in other people's experiences as well. There is not another answer out there that is going to fit completely what you hope and expect to have happened. There isn't one. But Jesus is who he says he was, and he convinced people clearly, and it's changed the world ever since. And I would submit that you need to continue to think and explore and even trust that Jesus can save you, just as he could save those people in their circumstances back then. If you're already a Christian, I want to encourage you as well. Uh, the next time you go through an extreme shift in circumstance that ab absolutely upends you, and dashes your hopes. Uh, I want to encourage you in those moments that you doubt your doubts. Uh, your doubts aren't fatal in those situations when they come. In fact, it's unexpressed doubt that's toxic to your faith. Uh, we need homes, and we need churches, and we need Christians where people can have conversations where legitimate doubts and questions can be expressed and listened to. And if we don't provide venues for people to have those conversations about their doubts out loud, uh, then they'll have those conversations elsewhere and they may be encouraged to arrive at a conclusion we wish they hadn't arrived at. Okay, we have to be patient with people. Uh, we need to encourage them to go to Jesus personally with their questions, just like John had to go personally through those eyewitnesses, his disciples, to Jesus, okay? And so I want you to know that if you are here and you're going through seasons of doubt at some point in the future, I want you to know I'm willing to listen and be that person in your life that you can safely express those doubts to and explore these questions with. I'll make myself available. Don't stop conversing with me or other Christians you know. I'll take your questions seriously. I'll listen to what your experience has been that's caused you to question everything. I'm not going to be upset with you because you think, oh, no, I'm not. He's going to think differently of me now. No. I probably won't even be surprised by what you tell me. Your experiences are yours. But I've heard a lot of experiences in my day, and then it's no longer surprising what people go through and why they come out the other side different than what they used to be. I may try to point you to some eyewitness accounts and testimony to try to engage with you, but your thoughts are worthy of being expressed out loud. Just imagine for a minute what your life would be like uh, if you or I 
actually go to Jesus with our questions and doubts. Imagine if we got some serious answers in return. Uh, John's disciples got some serious answers. If we listen to Jesus, we actually might actually come out on the other end of a traumatic experience and a time of questioning. We might come out on the other end with actually more faith because the testing of our faith has gotten us to the bedrock evidence of what is really, really true. What's the last thing Jesus tells John's disciples to tell John? What did he say in verse 23? He said, Blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. Anyone not offended by Jesus is blessed. Anyone who accepts Jesus' claims and draws near to Jesus is a privileged recipient of divine favor. From God's perspective, they're fortunate, right? God smiles on these people who are not offended by Jesus. He smiles on them even if they're in prison. There's a huge benefit if you trust that Jesus is the Christ. Not simply because anyone like John or Jesus asserts it, but because it's based on rock-solid evidence from the miracles that we see that the eyewitnesses themselves saw for themselves and wrote down and we now have in our scriptures. There's a difference. There's a difference between John the Baptist and Judas Iscariot. Judas leaves the faith altogether. John doesn't. And the only difference is John took the initiative to express his questions to Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I want to thank you so much for what you have taught many of us for many years. And maybe some of us are just being introduced to who you are and being introduced to what is in the Bible, and we don't even know who this guy John the Baptist is, but he went through it, Lord, and uh, you answered his questions when he went through a time of doubt. And we're going to go through times and seasons, Lord, when we have experiences that completely upend us and throw us every which way, and we're not... We're not the same as what we were before. And I pray that in those times, if we have any doubts, any trust issues about who you are, Lord Jesus, we would take them to you. We would reconsider what our faith is based on. That there were real people who saw you do amazing miracles, that you really did have the message from God because God approved of your message by performing all these miracles through you, Lord Jesus. Lord, you are the Savior of the world. You died on the cross for our sins and you rose again the third day and you're coming back. You're God. You're the one who is to come. Even now, come Lord Jesus. And as we go through this world and all of its troubles that are filled, we pray that as we come to questions that we would come to you with them. Honestly, come to you with them and express them out loud to you. And that you would answer us, Lord, just like you answered John. That we too might have the blessing of having our faith grow. And I pray that we would not be like Judas who did not take his doubts to you. I pray, Lord, that if there's anybody who has never trusted in you, I pray that they would say, wow, there were so many people who saw what really took place and that Jesus really did these things and want to know more and want to trust you about it. 
And I pray that the gospel would be clear to their heart as well. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.